This is the Education Gadfly Show. Wyoming, it was literally nine students. Remarkably, that's still 10% of all of the kids in Wyoming. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas P. Fordham Institute. Heard the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Debbie Vini. Debbie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. Debbie is the Senior Vice President of Communications and Marketing at the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. And we are very excited to have her here to talk about a new report they're out with this week. Before we talk about that, though, let us welcome our regular co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yes. Thanks for being here. I hope everything is okay in your world. I will say, I, I just asked David before the show, you know, what his toddler son is going to be for Halloween. And I got to say, you do not yet have a clear idea yet. And you know, we're less than six weeks away. This is a big one, David. This is, you know, free candy for a toddler. (laughs) These pictures you're going to look at for the rest of your life. So you got to, you know, no pressure, but you got to come up with something pretty good. Yeah. I think we have many dump truck and uh, public transportation related options, Mm -hmm. Mike. So yeah, we'll get there, you know? Okay. Okay. Good. (laughs) All right. Well, Debbie, we are, as I said, excited to have you here today. We are going to talk about the new report from the National Alliance called Voting with Their Feet, a state-level analysis of public charter school and district public school enrollment trends. Let's do that in Ed Reform Update. Okay, Debbie, so give us the down low. I assume we're talking about pandemic era movements within and between these two sectors, what are you finding? Indeed, we are talking about pandemic era movement. So we're specifically looking at the very first school year of the pandemic, the complete school year. So this is looking at the 2019 slash 2020 versus the 2020 and 2021. All these 20s are tangling my tongue up. What we saw was a significant increase in charter school enrollment year over year, about 7% all told, which equates to about 240,000 students across the country. And this is compared to a precipitous drop in district school enrollment, which was about 1.4 million, as you probably know. Yeah. So let's put this in context. So first of all, yes. So very clear. We're really talking about last school year, right? So a bunch more kids in charter schools last school year than the year before. Many fewer kids in traditional public schools, though, again, more kids left traditional public schools than entered charter schools. They, I assume, went elsewhere, or in some cases, we're talking about kindergarten kids who just never got sent to school in the first place. That's probably a big chunk. Is that pretty big compared to normal years? I mean, th- this is a movement that has had strong growth for you know 25 years, some years more so than others. Is this one of the biggest growth years that you've seen? It is for sure the biggest growth year that we've seen in about half a decade. So if you're looking at percentages, taking us back to good old math class, we'll remember that the bigger the end size, the harder it is to keep those percentages the same year over year. So while we've been growing steadily, Mike, the percentage numbers have been trending downward for the past several years. Very good. All right. And then you dig in state by state, and I assume there's some pretty big state variation as well. Indeed. In fact, not all states saw an increase. So we were able to get data from 42 states, and there were four territories slash states that we were not able to get data from. And out of the 42, we did see a decrease in three of them. Interesting. 
And again, that could be either the kids going somewhere else or it could be around kindergarten enrollment, I suspect. Exactly. And let's be clear, in one of these places, Wyoming, it was literally nine students that we lost from the charter sector. But, you know, some would call it flat, but we just want to be completely crystal clear and above board with the numbers. Remarkably, that's still 10% of all of the kids in Wyoming. Just kidding. Just And in some of these states, huge increases, right, in the charter sector, if I'm not mistaken. What were some of the biggest ones? So the very biggest numerical growth we saw during that year was in Oklahoma, where we were close to 45,000 new students. As you might suspect, knowing what you know about Oklahoma, a lot of that was due to full-time virtual charters. So they were almost 78% year over year. Yes. That next question is how much of this is virtual charter schools? This is a logical reaction to the pandemic, right? That if you're a parent, Mm -hmm. especially if you're in a place where your local school district was not offering a remote or hybrid option and and you wanted that because you were afraid of the virus or medically fragile, or maybe you just thought, you know, my local school district is trying to do remote learning and they've never done this before and they don't know what they're doing. And I'm going to go with a school that maybe has some more experience. So you know, of the increase we're seeing nationally, do you have a sense of how much of that was driven by the virtual charter schools? Well, we really only saw significant virtual charter school related enrollment growth in a handful of states. So really just just three of them. Three is my number today. Three decreased enrollment in three with big virtual charter school boosts. So it was Oklahoma. And here's another interesting little wrinkle for you. So Oklahoma, we said was number one, the very highest number. Now, number two spot was Texas with 29,000 new students who enrolled last year. And that was not due to virtual charters. That's fascinating. And now in a place like Texas, of course, this is a place that's growing like crazy still. People move into Texas all the time. Maybe some new schools opening during the pandemic. Is that part of it? Plus just existing schools recruiting more kids. There were some new schools that did open. Now, we don't have state level data or school. We don't have school level data, I should say, for each one of these states. Particularly in Texas, I can't tell you for certain what happened there, but we do know that a lot of it was maximizing capacity of existing available seats within a state. All right. So the big picture is a healthy increase for charter schools. At the time, the traditional public schools lost a lot of kids in a few states driven by virtual charter schools, but not in most of the country and and probably not driven by a whole lot of new schools because it's super hard to open a school during a pandemic. So really existing charter schools being chosen by families at a very healthy rate. So let's make sense of that, Debbie. I mean, what, what does that mean to you all at the Alliance? Uh, obviously, you guys love charter schools. That's why you do what you do. But how do we make sense of this? Is this just a fluke of this weird pandemic we're living through? Or does this have some meaning for us going forward? Well, we're encouraged by this data. And the big takeaway that we see is that this, because it was new students who were coming in, these were people who were not doing the charter enrollment thing before. And we we believe during the pandemic, and we're basing some of this on some polling that we've seen from some national partners, that people were very open to doing something different. And a lot of people didn't even realize they had options. They just kind of been doing what was the thing they always did. I go to the neighborhood school down the street, and then they're figuring out this neighborhood school down the street is maybe not working out so well. And And what we're also hearing is they're not planning to go back to the way that it was. And so we see this increased demand as really a watershed moment where a whole new group of charter parents are going to be entering the space. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I mean, I assume as we get better data, we can also try to nail down, you know, how much of this was, you know, because their their own neighborhood school was closed for in-person learning and they desperately wanted that. And the charter school said, yep, we're going to do in-person or we're going to do at least uh, some kind of hybrid. This, in my mind, has always been the case that, you know, for parents, especially parents, you know, who you know, kind of move to a neighborhood with schools in mind, you know, they're going to send their kids to traditional public schools unless there's a problem, right? And they hit some kind of problem. The kid's not doing well. Oftentimes it's, you know, maybe families with special needs students who aren't getting well served, you know, or gifted kids aren't, but there's something and the parent says, something is not working. Let me look around. Mm-hmm. Well, boom, we have a pandemic and it's very clear. Something's not working. The school's not opening, right? Or they're, <laughs> uh, the way they're managing this is frustrating me like crazy, or they're just not serving my kid well. And that gave them an excuse to look around. But, you know, as you say, if the parents now find, hey, I'm actually happier where I am. And I wish I'd looked at this before. That could have big repercussions going forward. David, get in here. What do you think about this? Yeah, I was going to ask some similar questions before I express an opinion, right? Forgive me if I missed this. Do we have a sense? Is it blue states or red states? Is, mm. Do we know at a very high level, right? Whether it's places where perhaps, uh, you know, those in charge were being too cautious about opening schools versus places where they were being too reckless. Do we know, is it low income kids, high income kids, or do we not know yet? So we, we know a lot about the types of states where we saw increases. I can't get as granular as telling you about the income level of the students at the schools, Mm -hmm. but the pattern I would say is that it really defied any real pattern. So (laughs) we saw growth pretty much like everywhere. And some of the things that were really surprising to me, you take some mature sectors like DC and Louisiana. I mean, it's kind of hard to get more charter schools students in DC than what you have already. Cause it's like one out of every two kids just about. So you didn't, it was pretty like flat there year over year. But when you look at places, even like New York, which has a pretty mature charter sector or California, we still saw growth. And then when you looked at some of the places that are new to the space, like out in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, they were going gangbusters. So Washington state, blue state, Oregon, also blue, they had really high numbers, but again, we saw the same thing in Texas. We saw big gains in in North Carolina, which is certainly not a blue state. We saw big growth in places like Minnesota. I mean, so. Yeah, hard to find a pattern, I guess. All all over the place. I I mean, what do you think, David? You know, of course, my, my brain wants to go to try to figure out is it. Is it all about the COVID thing, right? Their school wasn't open and charter schools were open or the district was doing in-person and the charter offered some remote. And it it was about parents trying to find something that met them where they were in terms of their own level of how much risk or caution. I think it'll be interesting, Mike, because I think, you know, I think the word capacity is an important one here, right? There is some unused capacity, right? Not every charter is maxed out to the point where every single seat is filled, right? And that's also true of traditional public schools in many places, by the way. So, you know, in a sense, though, right, unless you're opening a ton of new schools, there was a cap on how much growth was possible in many places in the short term. On the other hand, I do think, I think it's fair to say this is this is a watershed of events in most people's lives. And by most people, I mean, everyone on planet Earth, you know, unfortunately, And so I do think, I mean, it rings true to me that that certainly that parents would be thinking outside of the box 
So I suspect that there is a class of parents, I don't know how large it is, who did not really have the option of changing to another brick and mortar school, but thought about it uh, or, or looked into it in a way that they never have before, right? And so, you know, from the point of view of the charter movement, right, I think the trillion dollar question is sort of what is the psychology or attitude of those parents over the you know, sort of three to five to 10 year period, right? Are these people who are going to hold that thought as more charter schools open? Or, you know, is the moment going to pass, which would be understandable, frankly, and we're going to get a new set of parents who maybe have never had that thought quite so strongly because they're, you know, they didn't have kids during the pandemic. I guess the point is that there is a window of opportunity, I think, here for the charter movement, but it's not an infinite one, right? And so I don't think we want to sort of overstate it. Well, look, and you know, and listeners know, I have been skeptical that all of these parents that chose to do pods or some kind of homeschooling, you know, that they're going to stick with that after the pandemic. I mean, that is a huge lift as a parent, you know, and you've got to have, you know, the right to work set up and lifestyle and resources to make that happen. If you've got a decent option of called a school where you can send your kid, I think, in my view, most of those parents are going to go back to that. But look, if there's a question of which school, and you've now had the experience of a charter school, which tend to be smaller, which tend to be more personalized, which tend to, you know, be really focused on reaching out to parents, building a sense of community. Again, these are generalizations, but if you're happy with this experience and hey, charter schools are still free. You know, you got all these parents that maybe panicked and sent their kids to Catholic schools or something. They've got to make a big decision and they, those decisions come with dollar signs attached. You know, so anyways, I, I think more so than private schools, more so than the pods and the homeschooling, I think these shifts in the charter sector are more likely to last, you know, especially in the brick and mortar charters. But I guess time will tell. And we'll have to have you back on, Debbie, sometime, maybe uh, whenever this bleep, bleep, bleeping pandemic is over to tell us how it's all shaken out. Would love to. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. All right. Thanks again. Debbie Vini, the Senior VP of Communications and Marketing at the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Check out their report, Voting with Their Feet, on the National Alliance's website. Thanks, Debbie. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So so you and David both, I have to say, kind of failed the test last week on pop culture when I mentioned the Met Gala and you looked at me like I had two heads. Okay, so let's try this week. Have you followed along with the Emmys at all? A little bit. Ted, all right, how about Ted Lasso? Ted Lasso won a bunch of awards. Yes, no. You, I heard that. Goes into season two. Yeah. And the, and the Crown won big, right? The Crown. The crown yes, that's big. right. That's right. Yes. I knew that. I All did right. know The Crown won big. I was a big fan of The Crown and anxiously awaiting the next season. And that's a Netflix thing, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Very good. Much better. Yes, The Crown. Look, <laughs> I mean, how could they not win with Princess Diana in the show now, right? Yeah. It's about to get much sadder in the next series, right? Because, uh, yeah. Yeah. I forgot how far up they said they were going to go before they stopped, but. Yeah. I don't know. And, yeah. But Ted Lasso, I have to say, Amber, at least the first season I thought was quite good, which was the one that won all the awards. And, okay, uh, I'll check you know, it out. He's a cheery, cheesy American in London. Uh, <laughs> makes me feel good about our country. It does sort of, yeah, right? Yeah, and it's about uh, David's favorite sport. That's true, but it's also about so much more, Mike. So much more. All right, enough with that, Amber. What you got for us this week? We got a new Calder study this week conducted by Josh Egan and Corey Codell. 
It presents a descriptive analysis about industry-recognized credentials in Missouri. So how prevalent they are, the characteristics of students who complete IRCs, and how different IRCs attract different types of kids. I think most of our listeners know what an IRC is, but just in case, these are awarded to students who just demonstrate competency in a specific career through participating in a career training experience or by earning an adequate score on a technical skills exam. And of course, not just students earn these, right? I mean, adults can earn these too. That's how it all started. Adults can earn them, yes. But we're looking at uh, high school seniors in this study. Yep. It's not able to evaluate how IRCs impact students' academic and postgraduate outcomes because they don't have data linked to the labor market. They just have whether kids went to college or not. But just a little teaser, I couldn't help myself, that Fordham will be publishing a study in the spring of 2022 that actually examines the impact of IRCs on a bunch of mid and long-term outcomes. But for now, we've got this really cool descriptive study. They use IRC data and administrative data on all seniors in Missouri from the 2018-19 school year before COVID interrupted our entire lives. Since most IRCs are completed during the senior year, they use middle school test scores to document selection into the program by achievement. They also compare their IRC findings against other college-ready programs, including Advanced Placement and International Baccalaureate Programs, or AP and IB, which are grouped together. And they also compare outcomes to dual credit and dual enrollment courses, DC and DE, which are also grouped together. They use mostly linear regression and school-fixed effects models. A bunch of findings. Number one, they find that 9% of students in Missouri completed an IRC during their senior year, whereas completion rates for AP, IB courses, and DC, DE courses are obviously much higher, with 19 to 31% completing at least one course in these programs, respectively. The achievement level of the average IRC student is only slightly above the statewide mean, unlike the AP, IB, and DC, DE courses, which tend to draw disproportionately from the top end of the achievement distribution. These other college-ready programs serve more advantaged students as measured by FRL, IEP, and ELL status, but there's virtually no selection into IRCs along these dimensions, nor by gender. Mm -hmm. The only observed characteristic by which IRC completion gaps exist is by race ethnicity, as white students are more likely to complete IRCs than students in other race groups. Specifically, compared to their white peers, students in other race and ethnic groups are three to six percentage points less likely to complete an IRC. They find that completion gaps exist by race. Those gaps that exist by race, ethnicity are driven by both within and across school differences. And then they've got this neat little analysis looking, kind of digging into the types of IRCs. There are 55 that are available to be awarded in Missouri. And they find that some of them attract high achievers that have clear college intentions. And those include business management and informational technology, while others attract kids with low test scores who primarily enter the workforce directly from high school, including the architecture, construction, manufacturing, and transportation IRCs. Women and men similarly likely to complete an IRC, but they're sorted strongly. And we've heard this before into different types of IRCs. Men overrepresented in manufacturing, transportation, and construction. 
women overrepresented in education and health sciences. And then there were five fields which comprised two thirds of all IRCs completed in the study year. They were agriculture, health science, transportation, business management, and hospitality slash tourism. Finally, they closed with the observation that IRCs serve a much broader population of high school students than some of these other more studied programs like DE, DC, AP, and so on. Uh, we need more research. Uh, and they, uh, I guess one thing I'll add that they didn't do too much discussion was that some of these IRCs, there's a concern that they're going to lead to dead-end career paths. So it's even more important to know how particular IRCs may be more valuable than others. That's what I got this week. Boom. Boom. Really interesting, Amber. It's a lot of data, and, and yet they're so clear that it's just descriptive, you know? Yeah. Uh, so one, the, the first question I always have is, you know, are any of the really bogus credentials included in here? I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen from our studies some great work that Excel and Ed has done, others that, you know, you dig in and in some of these places, uh, you know, kids are getting a what certificate in first aid. Or Microsoft Office, yeah. Yeah, or Microsoft Office. And and that's counting, and that's counting in the state accountability system in some cases where they mm-hmm. get extra points for. So do we know? I mean, are these all kind of legit, legit credentials? Yeah, I, I didn't look at the appendix with all 55 listed, but I guess, yeah. you know, we heard where two thirds of these things are being awarded in. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know what you made of no, those. They, no, they, they sounded pretty legit to me. Right. Um, yeah. And look, the, the idea that these are kids that are sort of near the median, you know, let's keep in mind in most states and my home state of Missouri is no exception. Kids at the median are not college ready. Right? I mean, you know, today you got to be, you know, probably at the 60th percentile to really be college ready and to be uh, predicted to graduate from college. So, you know, these are kids that probably don't have the academic skills required to succeed in traditional college. So, you know, the fact that they're getting a credential that can help them, I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, I don't, I don't see a downside here. But what do you think, David? Yeah, uh, I guess I agree with that. I mean, I'm really of two minds when it comes to this stuff. On the one hand, I think you're correct and ha- have been correct when it comes to this notion that we need a backup plan, Right. That's the wrong way to frame it. Excuse me. It should be college and career ready, right? And that we should mean that and that college isn't the only, you know, the only destination. Having said that, right, I was reading in this morning's New York Times or wherever and and was reminded of the number of new jobs that are being created that actually do require a four-year degree. And I don't know quite what to say about that, right? Because I have some some pretty strong critiques of four-year degrees, right? But I there's some countervailing forces here, right, that we have to be careful of. And I guess I just would say that we really do need more research of the sort that we're trying to do, which is actually figuring out if these things matter in the real world, right? Because it sounds mm-hmm. good on paper, but, you know, when you actually go into a job interview, they don't discuss any line on your resume, right? And, you know, ultimately, it's going to be about skills. And so I don't know. Anyway, I think my point is, in principle, I'm all for it. But I just feel like it's very early days when it comes to successfully connecting, in particular, like high school with the job market, right? And that's a very lofty goal. And we've been failing at it for decades. So I'm all for the attempt. But I'm I'm, I'm sober minded this morning. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I I guess what I wanted to add was just that we've seen these programs. And when the industry is an active participant in developing, you know, what skills and abilities and assets they're looking for versus not, 
And we've seen this in other countries, right, where the industry is just much more involved than, than typically we see here in the U.S., where they can, you know, actually vouch for that these are indeed the, the skills and abilities that we're, we're looking for. And to, and me, to, to my mind, that that's where the rubber hits the road. You know, are, are there real people with, you know, real jobs in these industries that are actively involved? Yeah, put it this yeah. way, right? I mean, we know that if you go to Harvard, right, you're going to get a job. What we're trying to figure out, right, is if you get a certificate in X or Y or Z, right, if you're at least somewhat more likely to get a job. And I guess the point is it's, it's hard to get to quality, right? And I think we're on the right track. But we have a lot of work to do just in terms of actually nailing down what's working and why and sort of separating the wheat from the chaff, not just at the level of the, the obvious level of like Microsoft Word, but beyond that, like, how do we tell the difference between a good mm-hmm. IT prep program and a bad one, right? I mean, the whole conversation is just at the level of like, you know, is this something that sounds good? Is it something that is plausibly, you know linked to employment in, in Missouri, right? We're just at a very, very early stage when it comes to this right. whole conversation. Yeah. And, and again, let's be clear. Obviously, we're not choosing between Harvard and a no, technical No, we're not. Right? And I'm agreeing with that point. I just want to urge caution. Yeah. And the question is, you know, if the kids were not working on an industry credential as seniors in high school, what else would they be doing, right? And if you're talking about kids who are at the median I'm sorry, they're, they're probably not going to succeed in an advanced placement class. You know, if they do succeed in a dual enrollment class, I'm going to have some questions about the standards of that class, if that's really college. So to me, this is better than having them blow off some courses they don't care about that are just normal high school courses. If this is something that's going to give them some momentum into a better paying job than they'd otherwise have, hey, let's do it. We need more of this. We need more apprenticeships. We need more. And senior year is not enough, but it's better than what we've got in a lot of places. And, you know, Mike, the gender stuff is interesting, right? Particularly, you know, because there's a growing amount of chatter <laughs> about mm-hmm. sort of about the struggles that boys are facing. It's not entirely clear what's going on, right? It's not clear mm-hmm. if it's really a school problem or a family problem or both, probably both, Right. But I, you know, intuitively, I do think that some forms of CTE have potential because it's changing what school is or trying to, right? It's trying to make it more real. It's trying to make it more immediate. And I think it has potential to engage boys. So I think we need to Mm -hmm. keep beating that drum and pursuing that sort of line of inquiry too. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you, Amber. Good one. All right. Well, hey, that is all the time we've got for this week. And so until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.